Hey, everybody, this is Watar. That's good music. Greg Gilbertson wrote that for our show. This is another week of Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? Today, I'm offering something like a talk. I gave this talk at Montanica, a conference out west, on basically asking how shall you live in this world? And this is a talk on living in this world as per the notion of giving, taking, and cargo. What is material stuff to us? So, it's a talk offered to you from us, from First Things, and from Patristic Faith, where we were able to participate in this wonderful event this past June. To you, a little bit of Watar and a talk from Montana, and I hope you enjoy it. So here's the thing. I cut my teeth on uh, public speaking, doing stand-up uh, comedy in New York City and, um, and uh, teaching uh, 17-year-olds who are really, really annoying. <laughs> and the first rule is you never do your set after the audience got their food, and you never take the class right after lunch. <laughs> Because already people in the back are like, oh, Lord, this is, uh, uh, I'm getting tired. So it was my fault, by the way. I chose this slot like a dummy. So uh, I want to thank you all. I'm afraid I'm going to move this here. I move around a lot, but I'm going to try to stand still. It's very uh, important. What's up, Father Turbo back there? In the Georgian tradition, there's this thing called the supra. Have anybody been to Georgia here? Yeah, right on, Johnny. So at the Supra, which I'll talk about a little bit, um, there's usually a long table, and the Tamada is at one end. The Tamada is the Toastmaster. We opened a restaurant where we do this in Greenville. I hope you'll all come sometime. And the other end of the table, the very other end of the table, the traditional seat at the other end of the table is for the oldest male. And so if I'm your Tamada today, look at standing back there. Father Turbo. <laughs> and by the way, the seat on the other end is meant for two things. One, they're the oldest because they're the wisest. They go together, just like in Asian history. If you're old, you're wise. That's, you, you, that's not like a debate. He's really wise. He's wiser than that, that old guy. No, he's not. He's younger. Impossible. I don't know that you're the oldest guy here. But I will say this. The other role that that person on the other end plays is they watch the Tamada. And their role is as if the father to the son. And they just watch to make sure the Tamada is giving good toasts. So take a seat. You're making me nervous. <laughs> Can I stop kidding, Father? Do whatever you want. Can I start with a toast? I don't know if anybody even cares, but I do a podcast. And I always try to toast on a podcast every now and then. I want to make a toast. It's really important. You'll see that Georgia really works in. I don't care what you're drinking, though, in Georgia. If you're drinking water like I am to a toast, that's embarrassing. It means a lot of bad things, but we're, I don't know, we're together. I sprung it on you, okay? I sprung it on you. I want to make a toast in general to this. Um, we've come together, and if you notice that we're close, we're close. I got a neighborhood, I don't know about you, but I see my neighbors very rarely, and when I do, they're like, over there. They're not close, they're not physically close. 
And there's an energy that uh, is imbibed by us. And it's a, it's a proper Christic energy. And I know I felt it the last two days. And I'm going to take it home with me. So I want to make... By the way, if I cry a lot, it's weird. I know. But my dad did it too. I don't have, I'm not even sad right now. But I'm just saying. <laughs> I just want to say this. When we take this home, guys, Emmanuel, Christ is with us. God is with us. Gagimarjos, cheers to you. May to you the victory over death. Gagimarjos. So, I should say something now of some import or not. Um, I want to thank you all, first of all. Um, Your grace, I want to thank you. It matters. It matters. Where is he? Is he here? He's not back. It matters, though, that our clergy are here. As you guys know, I have a clergy person in my life. I'll talk about that. Maybe not. Um, it matters. Pray for us. Thank you for being here. Deacon Ananias, this lovely parish, Holy uh, Trinity, thank you. Thank you. It matters. So I'm trying to figure all this out, trying to figure out what to say, trying to figure out why I should say it. Well, these four things kept coming up for me. And essentially, seek ye first the kingdom. It meant something to me, especially recently, right now at this moment, service and sacrifice kept coming up. It's part of our work, which I'll explain. So I want to talk about that. America kept popping up. The Western world. Patrick, bravo. Patrick seeing, there he is. He's seeing the Western world. And, and it, it, I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid it in this conversation, so I'm going to talk about that. And then wealth and poverty. Wealth and poverty. I feel like we have to address these ideas, at least I do, as the chosen speaker, and I'm going to. And so to do that, um, I want to start with service and sacrifice and what that is and how it ties into seeking the kingdom. And to do that, I just want to tell you a little bit about myself, if I could, because some people don't know. And if, if you do know, you should hear it from me, not from the interwebs, whatever that is. So, so we do this thing called First Things Foundation. And I, I don't know how to explain this. It's not very orthodox, according to this guy I know, my brother. He jabs me. And first of all, I just want to say I am not him. My name is John. He's Peter. Whenever I show up in an Orthodox church, it's a hassle, but I love him very much. Where's the camera? I love you, bro. Love you. A lot. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what ethos I have, but it's barely Orthodox. But it, here's the deal. That guy is blessed. Pray for him. He's excellent. He also tells the truth. He can't help it. I know I sat in the back of my dad's orange Buick a lot with him, and we had a lot of fights, and we threw some punches, and they land with truth, I'll tell you right now. So pray for him. But yeah, I, I do First Things Foundation. And we have people in our organization that are atheists. We have people that, well, one of my favorite person was a Georgian woman who pretty sure that she was an atheist, and then suddenly a Mayan Shaman. Yeah, I know. It was weird. We kind of take them all. But I want to say something about what we do. What we do is we take a bet 
that if you combine something like perseverance and love and you combine that with asceticism, what happens is, is you get orthodoxy on some level that speaks to the people in our society right now in a way that's proper. Here's what I mean. We take a bet that if you go overseas or you go to Appalachia or you go to the toughest places in the world, by tough here, I want you to hear impoverished. But you'll see when St. John Chrysostom starts talking to us, we know the real deal. But I want you to think of hard places to live. I've lived overseas for almost six years of my life with no running water and no electricity. That teaches you a lot. And we send folks into those communities. And what happens when they get there is we take a bet that if they spend enough time in the community, imagine you guys, you're Kailan or you're Sindala in, in West Africa in Mali. This is the village. We all came together. Imagine. If I spend enough time in this village, not a weekend, like USAID showing up, rolling in, handing out papers and getting everybody to say, hey, give us money. If we spend enough time in this village and I meet the right people, about 10 of you, about 10 out of 100, really it's nine, have an enzyme. There's something about you that's magnificent. You probably don't read or write, no good. You probably dropped out by fourth grade in the places where we work in Mozambique and Sierra Leone and Georgia. But you got something. And what you have is amazing and magnificent. In our country, we call it creativity or entrepreneurship. You can't call it that in these places because entrepreneurship implies an individual um, wealth gain. Very few people say, I say entrepreneur and you say 11 people. No, it's one. You can't say that in an ancient society or in old world societies where they, where they work together as com in community because an entrepreneur that makes a lot of money in Kailan, where we work, in West Africa and Sierra Leone, they have to give it away by definition. If they don't give it away to their friends and their neighbors and especially to their family, then they get ostracized and they get exiled. So a lot of people who do mission work get confused. They call that thing I just described as corruption. But what it actually is is communitarianism. It's the necessary giving to those who made you, even though you earned it. But of course, we know you didn't earn it. You didn't even earn your own skin. Your parents gave you that. So it's a natural returning. And so what we try to find are those six people, those 11 people, that one person who will organize. And then we give them attentiveness. We, we attend to them and to their projects so that they can grow their own project in their own community, in this community. But we have to do it as outsiders, and there's a reason. Because if we do it as an insider, what happens? I can't get any traction. The minute I work with you guys, then hey, hey, what about, you're from us, you're not from, I can't get traction. So the outsider is essential. The last thing is, the outsider has to practice asceticism. That's what we do. That means if you guys live in mud huts, and you eat the same meal for lunch every, every and you do, trust me. I lived in a village in Mali for two and a half years. I swear to you, I'm not exaggerating. Evan, not this much. They ate Sanyo Kini, that's millet, every day for lunch for the entirety of the two and a half years. I never saw a different meal made in that village at lunch. At dinner, they got crazy, maybe did one or two different things. But at lunch, the same thing. And we ask our men and women to do that. We ask them to not take their own cars. They have to take public transport. We ask them to use local clinics. Try recruiting someone when you tell them you gotta use a local clinic. They don't like that. 
You wouldn't like that, but come. Because it's amazing what happens. You practice a type of asceticism that leads you into orthodoxy, even if you're not. Of the 33 people we've sent, nearly eight people out of those 33 have converted to orthodoxy. In Africa. <laughs> okay, figure that out. I, there's no church around. I don't know how to explain it to you. <laughs> it happens. So I'm telling you all this because essentially my work is about something like hospitality. And by that, I mean offering health. Hospital is a word, guys, tied to hospitality. You shouldn't achieve, acquire, and offer hospitality if it doesn't end in health. But here's the key. You don't have to think about hospitality. You just have to do it. So what we try to offer is ourselves. And what really happens is, is what's offered back is even more hospitality. Then you make something like a beautiful relationship, and then what comes is a beautiful project. So by the end of two years, often our field workers, they do this thing called build a small project. So this was a textile, we started, a family started a textile business in Guatemala with our guy Juno there. We started a really cool school project in the highlands of Momostenango in Guatemala. There was a clinic project, there was a bee honey project. What happens is, is when you invest time, then beauty builds. Now, do we save the world? All of you should say, please don't try to save the world because we don't do that, because that's a dumb idea. So before I continue, I just want to give you a story from one of our experiences, because stories are really important. I think stories are the actual essential communicative move in life. So here's a story. I really want you to hear it. It comes from my work in Haiti. Uh, in 2000, I took my family to live in Haiti as Orthodox missionaries. Again, I'm telling you more about myself, but we'll get into the nitty gritty. We'll get into America and all this stuff. There were five of us at the time, three daughters, my wife and I, there's six of us now. We didn't have running water for a year and a half. We didn't have electricity. Um, well, the electricity would come in about, come on about sundown for an hour and everyone charged their batteries. We lived in a compound with two other Haitian families place called Quad de Bouquet. We were an anomaly. My wife is a black woman, born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx. I'm a white dude from wherever, I don't know. I say New York. I say I, I identify as a New Yorker. As a New Yorker, I spoke French and I spoke Haitian Creole, the language that they spoke to her in and waited for her to tell me the answers, but she couldn't speak nothing. It was great. They couldn't figure her out. They couldn't figure out little brown kids out. Nobody understood what was happening. So here's, here's the story I want to tell you. On the second day, I met the priest I would be working with. This was under Rocor. This is 20 years ago. No, not quite. And I met the deacon. He's a good man, okay? I met them, and they said, let's take a ride. We'll go have dinner at the deacon's house. For some reason that day, Father Turbo, I don't really get this, but I was driving. I don't, I don't understand why they had me drive. I barely knew Port-au-Prince, right? So we're going through Port-au-Prince. The priest is sitting here. The deacon's behind. And we hit traffic. It slows way down, but it's, 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 it's a lot happening. And I, I, don't, I see a crowd or not, but the traffic is very slow. I could walk faster than the car. And then a man comes just off to my left. I can still see this. He comes out, and he on the other side of the road, but he's weaving through the cars. 
And I notice, I can still see his jaw, I can see his face, his strong jaw. And he walks right in front, right in front of my car, just over here, and then drops. And the reason he dropped is because he had a massive, massive open wound across his head. I couldn't even see his face. He was bleeding. Just, just the worst scene that you can imagine. And behind him were people also weaving in and out. I'm talking like not two, but like 20 people. And so I put the car in park and I said to the priest, I said, and I'm not sharing names because I don't want to do that. But he, I said, hey, father, let's get this guy. And I had already started to get him. And he said, no, 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 don't do this. No, 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 no. Do not open that door. Whatever you do, don't open that door. And the deacon's like holding me like this way. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, we got to get this guy. We should put him in the truck. No, no, whatever you do. And I try again, but they're holding me. I said, what's going on? He goes, if you get out of that truck right now, you're going to be responsible for everything that happens right after that, everything. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to put him in. And I'm having this bad French fight. I can't speak French that well. And I'm trying to explain. I'm getting out of the car. And they said, if you get out of that car, then I'm, we're going to take the car and leave you. You mustn't get out. And so then I put the car in drive, like almost entirely against my will, or was it? And then we just inched. You would think we drove off, but the problem was there was traffic. So we just inched away from this man who's, he's in bad shape. And then eventually the traffic lightened up and I, I'm trying to get an explanation. They go, go to the house, go to the house. They got to the house and had dinner. The whole dinner was like, never, ever stop for anyone on a road like that. Don't you know what they think of you? And I'm like, what do they think of me? You're an American, you have money. They're gonna take all that money off of you the minute you try to help the guy. I'm like, who's they? It's the government, the police. When you go to the police, they're gonna make you pay for his burial. They're gonna make you pay for all the fines that are required by the police. Don't touch that guy. He's probably a thief anyway. I was less than 48 hours in the country. I had lived in Africa and already in Georgia. I mean, I'd seen some stuff, guys. I'd seen people be killed, but I was like, this is crazy. This is the priest. So I drove back two hours later, maybe three. We took the same road back, and that man was laying on the side of the road dead, and people were walking around him, going off to wherever they were going off to. That's the truest story I can tell you, because it, it actually is probably one of the... I'll get back to it. <laughs> There's a reason for the story, because what I want to talk about demands the story, okay? But it, it was a pretty serious story. So we're going to come back to that. Not because I'm crying, because I want to come back to it on purpose. Let's talk about America for a second. So America in the West. I like to call, uh, like, jam America into a phrase. Really, all of the West. The Roman Protestant individualistic scientific legacy. We're all living in it. Whatever it is, wherever you find it, the Roman Protestant individualistic scientific legacy we call modernity, it's a big topic. But I'll just boil it down today into just one simple concept. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. <laughs> Does anybody know who Sheldrake is? Right on, right on. I wanna tell you about Rupert Sheldrake 
because he helps us to understand something. He's a PhD from Cambridge. Uh, if there's a university, he's probably spoken at it, right? Sheldrake has written a bajillion books, incredible books. I highly recommend them, though they're super weird. Be ready for weird, because what he's trying to do is wake up. He's not trying. He can't help it. He's waking up. He's written a book about the physics of angels. Because he's a scientist. He can't just be angels. There's got to be like a way they do that stuff. And so The Physics of Angels is one of his books. He's written a book. It's really interesting about what is objectivity. Very fascinating. We know the object, of course, is Christ. He's not there yet, but it's interesting. He realizes without the, without the object, there can be no subject. There's only nihil. He's very interesting. So he's a world-renowned scholar. Google rates him as a 40 on the high H index. I don't know what that is. <laughs> he scored an indomitable 120 on the I-10 index of Google scholars. I swear I'll give you some money if you know what that is right now. I do not know what that means. What I'm trying to say is he's really good at science and really good at Google, and he's really one of these interesting characters. And now you need to know what he says. He says that matters, what matters to moderns is matter. That's why I liked the two talks today earlier before me. Because he's a scientist and he's interested and he's willing to open up his mind, what he starts to see is that if a scientist believes in something like matter and material reality, they are not in alignment with reality. Sheldrake, I'm telling you about him for a reason, I promise. Sheldrake, this mega scientist, has begun to realize what the scientific enlightenment has given us. And I tell you all of this because he created a top 10 list. Wanna do it? Here's his top 10 list. I told you I did stand up, I can't get away from it. That's why my brother's like, I'm not going on that podcast with you. <laughs> that happens. That happens. Here's his top 10 list of things that this room believes. And here's what I mean. You believe it because you're modern. If there's somebody in here who was born, I don't know, in say 1211 AD, let me know, because you would not be on this list. <laughs> but this list applies to you if you were born, well, if you're alive right now, it applies to you, okay? He says, I think he's right. He says that Every modern person has in some way imbibed this top 10 list, and in some way they live by it. Let's see. Number one, nature is mechanical. It's predictable. Like, if you go up to the top of a building and jump off, I can predict what's going to happen to you. And you think it's going to happen to you, too. Matter is unconscious. Number two. In other words, when you painted that rock as a kid and put eyes on it, that was the joke. It doesn't have a conscience. Nobody was like, I wonder what it's thinking. <laughs> the laws of nature are fixed, right? They're fixed. And they're always fixed. That's four. Everything that entered the world at the Big Bang is everything there is, and it's all that ever will be. There won't be more of it. There won't be less of it. 
That's number four. Number five, nature is purposeless. Nature has no purpose. It has no talos. It just does stuff and then does some more stuff and then it does some other stuff and then no one knows why and you don't know why, but it just does stuff. That's nature. It's purposeless. Inheritance is entirely material, number six. You are what your parents gave you as genes and cytoplasm. That's it. That's you. That's you. You have a hunchback because your mom had a hunchback. Sorry, I don't know what to tell you. That's how it goes. Number seven, the number seven truest thing about modern people and what they believe. Memories are stored in your brain. You remember about yourself. What you remember is stored in an atom, a molecule dancing about waiting for a curtain call in your brain. That's it. What you know about yourself is stored in your brain. Your mind is in your head, number eight. Consciousness is circumscribed by a home you call your skull. That's it. If you don't have a skull, you don't have a mind. Fact. Do you believe this stuff so far? If you're like, I don't believe any of those, uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> Psychic activity, things happening in your brain and then affecting other brains. Say like, I don't know, what I'm thinking right now can't affect you. That's the rule, it can't affect you. And that law that says everything that's happening in here is only happening in here is for me something like building seven. <laughs> Let's just not talk about it. Doesn't seem real, seems kind of weird that my brain could affect your brain somehow in a weird way that's not in my skull. Let's not talk about it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, uh, I don't wanna get fired. That's number nine. And number 10 is medicine is mechanistic. And it's the only kind that works. This foundation of modern life really doesn't need a punchline, I don't think, because if you think that's true still, you are, you got a problem, okay? <laughs> But modern medicine is mechanistic, and I think we all think of it that way. You're like, put it in my mouth. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. There's a relationship between what you do and how you should feel. We believe that to be true. Now, why am I telling you all these things, this top 10 list? This top 10 list, cited by the world's most intriguing scientists as what we've come to believe in, morale, in, in modernity, this list, mm, has in some ways been our legacy, what we've inherited. You did it at school. We did it at school and you imbibed it and I imbibed it. We imbibed it and now we're waking up. This room is red-pilled or whatever you wanna call it. We're waking up. Sheldrake is waking up. Orthodox Christians are waking up. This might not be true, but still the list has a lot of utility and this is why it has utility, okay? The list has utility because it tells us who we have been, which helps us to understand the next thing 
of how we should act in a world that may not be telling us the truth? How should we act in a world that doesn't tell us maybe how reality is? So, do you guys think those things are true? Not do you think they're true according to your orthodoxy, but do you think people around you generally, when I go out here to the store, do you guys think, I think they think it's true? Or better yet, even if they had a moment and thought, ah, with their mind, their intellect, I don't really think that's true, they still operate as if it is true. And so matter, material things, atoms, genes, cytoplasm, Teslas, <laughs> concrete, fingernails, dollar dollar bills, y'all. That's what matters. That list tells us that's what matters. And that's what Deacon was talking about and Patrick. Matter matters to us moderns. And people who make good matter, they matter the most. As C.S. Lewis says, right, we've always loved magic. And the new magicians are the scientists who give us the stuff that we want. And so if this is all true, we have a problem. If these principles have taken root, how are we supposed to seek an immaterial kingdom, God's kingdom in a haze of material wealth? And that, that brings us, is there, a, do we have any sound in here? I want a drum roll. That brings us, nice, nice. That brings us to the very disagreeable and most wonderful St. John Chrysostom. St. John talking about poverty and wealth. Poverty and wealth. St. John, as you guys know, doctor of the church, one of the three great hierarchs. If you've read his hagiography, he was, shall we say, very disagreeable. He sought truth. If he didn't find it right away, he kept looking, and then he sought some more, and then sought some more, and then he, if he talked about stuff, he talked about truth. He lived truthfully. He blazed his way through the world. He knew how to live in the world. He knew how to seek the kingdom, St. John. But man, what a pain, such a pain. Sorry, if you haven't read on poverty and on wealth, go do it. But I'll share some with you in the meantime. Here's one thing he says from his homilies on poverty. What is it to be rich? To be poor, I say, the rich man is not the one who has collected many things, but the one who needs few things. And the poor man is not the one who has no material possessions, but the one who has many desires for many things. Rich and poor, what a great definition. Listen to all the things, the stuff. It's to be rich is to have few things. To be poor is to desire and to acquire many things. Just let that run through your mind as you think about America. He goes on. So, if you see someone, Evan, 
Greedy for many things, you should consider him the poorest of all, even if he has acquired everyone's money. If, on the other hand, you see someone with few things and fewer needs, you should count him the richest of all. And if he has acquired no things, he is like a king. What? <laughs> come on. Come on, St. John. Come on. I... I admit, I, I, have a, I have an Xbox. It happened, it was in my house. It's there right now. I, have, I don't play it a lot, I don't have time. Eh, little time. <laughs> really? It's so bad? Here's another thing, he's not done. If anybody thought, well, that's the end of that, that's not the end of that, there's a lot more. Here's one, the rich man had his ship full of merchandise and it sailed before the wind. But do not be impressed. The rich man, he says, was hastening to a shipwreck. Why, you ask? Because the rich man refused to unload his cargo with discretion. And this, of all these little words I wrote, this is my favorite. This is the best. Rich folks have cargo. And for someone who spends their lives acquiring cargo, Thinking about cargo, measuring cargo, delivering cargo, handling cargo, <laughs> becoming a cargo file for that person unloading and throwing that cargo overboard. That's a really hard thing to do. It seems like I shouldn't do it. Rich people, guys, don't unload their cargo. And that weighs the rich man down and slows his ship. And in fact, it sinks his ship. It invites the dark, the dark deep below. It brings a man closer to Diavolos. And the best part of this quote for me is that St. John says, the rich man didn't unload his cargo with discretion. Don't do this, Joseph. Let's say that you like this talk a little. Don't get in your car, drive home, take all your stuff and throw it in the garbage. Don't do that. Bad. Yeah, it's not terrible, but God, he's not like, way to go, Joseph. Discretion. Discretion. To be healthy, right? To be healthy, you must unload your cargo, right? But you have to do it with discretion. Intentionally. The way someone bandages a wound, right? The way someone ingests a healing medicine. You don't just, you don't take a pill and pop it in your eye. You take a healing medicine and make sure it goes all the way down. You make sure that with the intention that you bandage your brother who's sick. To be healthy, a rich man must unload their cargoes. It's the medicine for what ails them. It is the beginning of hospitality. It is the beginning of a hospital. It's where you get healed. Then in his second homily on poverty, Golden Tongue adds this little whopper about beds. Personally, one of my favorite pieces of cargo. I don't know how you guys do with beds. I like beds. When you're on a bed that you, that's not yours, that sucks. I like beds. Everyone's like, why is he talking about beds? Beds. St. John says this. 
He says, you rich men consider that while you sleep on a bed of ivory, someone else does not enjoy even sufficient bread, maybe even your neighbor. Will your conscience not condemn you? Won't your conscience rise up as you sleep on that bed of ivory? Won't your conscience awaken and denounce this inequity? And if it does not rise up, what defense will you have before God? Then he talks about King David. King David probably had a few beds. Consider David, he says, what kind of bed did he have? Not adorned all over with silver and gold, but his bed was adorned with tears and confessions. He himself, David himself tells us, I shall wash my bed every night. I shall water my couch with my tears. David washed away his sins of stuff with tears of contrition. He gave away his ivory bed too. And so if you think of this for a minute, Rupert Sheldrake is a recovering light person. He's a recovering person of the enlightenment. And he tells us as a scientist that we moderns believe in 10 things that really are just one thing. And that one thing is that matter is all that matters. And then St. John tells us that when you acquire goods, those goods are actually killing you. He tells us that matter doesn't matter at all. The modern world tells us it's all there is and our lights tell us that it's actually poison. We have a problem. <laughs> we have a problem. I immediately think of a, of a show my wife really likes. It's called Hoarders. Has you ever seen Hoarders? Come on, come on. Don't be ashamed, that's right, that's right. You've seen it, don't be ashamed. Hoarders is basically a show for voyeurs. Again, I'm sorry to you guys and to my wife. I watch it too. It's for voyeurs who want to watch what happens when people accumulate and acquire and keep getting new stuff. What happens? It's really gross what happens, okay? Rats happen. Grime happens. Insects happen. Watch the show. These cats have so much stuff in their house, they don't even know what's in their house anymore. Here's the other thing, secretly, everybody knows a hoarder. You know six degrees of separation? I think my best friend, Terry Ohl, I think he was a hoarder. Well, I think his parents were hoarders, because I used to walk through the house going, wow, they have a lot of books. And now I think back, that was an abnormal amount of books. It was a hoarder house. It's a particular kind of disease. Come with me to Sierra Leone. Come with me to West Africa. They don't have hoarders, guys. No offense, okay? That's never happened. You're not like walking into a mud hut filled with random things piled up so high that snakes live in there. Because if you watch the show, that's what happens. That's what actually happens. So I think what's happening is you're watching a show that's diabolos, that's a dissolution. In the Greek, diabolos is the opposite of symbolos. Symbolos is that symbol, icon which unites. Diabolos is that which is falling apart. 
I think you're watching dissolution. That's what happens on the show. People of all stripes become consumed by the thing they collect. The other thing you see on the show is that there's this weird team of specialists. Because it's America, you gotta have the bad guy and the good guy. This guy, this team of specialists in t-shirts come in to save the hoarder, right? I'm not lying, if you've seen it. And they come in and the whole show is about like, how are we gonna save this guy? So how do you think they save him? What do you think the answer is? It's not. They take all their stuff, throw it in a giant dumpster and take it to the ocean, which is a whole nother story. But anyway, <laughs> they dump all the guy's stuff. And you should watch the hoarders. They're like, no, 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 that's my jersey from when I was a kid. You're like, well, maybe hold on to that one. But why do you have 74 jerseys? And they just extract this stuff from the hoarders, right? They make the hoarder give away their stuff, and it's a perfect and apt image. It helps us answer the question, how should I live? How should I live? How should I attain the kingdom? Do you have a savings account? I, I got it. It's not very big, though, I will admit. If it's big enough, the bugs can hide in it, and rats, does it pile up? Does it smell? Bring it to the extraction team, Take your medicine and give it away to your neighbor. Dare you. You won't. You might. Maybe. You won't. Evan, maybe? Possible. Possible. Does your parish have a giant endowment fund? I've been to some towns where some really big churches have some really big endowment funds. Uh, definitely some lice and mice are living in that endowment fund, no offense. And it smells, it's a stinky, stinky thing. Bring an extraction team, hand that stinky thing over to the poor and get your health back, big endowment fund people. I would highly recommend that. Is your uncle sitting on a big 401k the size of Big Sky Country? Help him get healthy, please, and give it away, like now. Well, what will I do when I'm old? I don't know. Be a Christian and find out. <laughs> no offense. That's what Christ says, right? Buying that third car for when your kids come home, this is actually me. We have a third car for our four daughters, but now they're basically all out of the house and it just sits there. And I'm like, I'm holding on to that thing. Yeah, get rid of it. You're a goner. It's eating you alive. Give it away. We're upside down, guys. If Sheldrake and Chrysostom are right, it means that almost everything we've ever been raised to believe about America actually assists in our demise. And yet America, like all things worldly, all things worldly, all nations, all people ever, like all things worldly, America is groaning to be redeemed. And it will be redeemed if we all re-gift. Re-gift. You can't gift, you can't give gifts. You know that, right? You can't give a gift because you never had it in the first place, bro. It was given to you. Re-gift. We must re-gift what we've been given. Our money, our things, our dreams, everything must go to our neighbors. And we must give as much away as we can. Just like, I don't know about you, 
I can run three or four rat races up and down in practice for a big ball game, but I can't do 20. I might even be able to do six really hard back and forth on the court, but I can't. I'm too old now. So I'll do six, maybe seven. I'll give as much as I can. That's how we must live. We must max overdrive hospitality. And we can do this. I know. I've seen people do it. I've seen people do it during a bloody civil war in the Georgian Republic when I worked there in the 90s. I watched in Georgia, in tiny villages, where I would go to do help. Yeah, they were helping me. I would go into a village and I wore, I saw women, widows who wore socks for shoes in the winter, feed me their best dinner, and then eat cornmeal for a month. Why? I can't even say hi to my neighbor. Why can he do that? Why could she do that? Why? In Sierra Leone and in Mali, I've seen folks who eat that lunch, the same lunch, the same one over and over again, the same one. I've seen them, when I roll up into the village to say hello, make me a special peanut soup, one that they won't eat for a whole nother month, and give it to me. Why'd they give it to me? Because... They know what it means to live, to be healthy, right? I saw a man, this happened, this happened. I visited a village, this is in West Africa. I visited a village, walking into the village, there was no place for me to sleep. So they literally, basically kicked the guy's door down. I don't know, they knew him, because this village is like 500 people. And they kicked the guy's door down, not really. It was like three in the morning. Told this young guy, he's probably 18, get up, get up. I crawled into his bed and he laid down on the dirt floor with no pillow, no coverings, and fell asleep at my feet. Fact. And I laid there all night. We can do it. By the way, that guy was a Muslim. Yeah. Think about that. Christ did this. He gave us life by giving us his 401k and his shoes and the savings account. And also, that's right, his life. And I'm sorry, but it's true. He went all in, and in turn, we live. And that brings me back to the sad story about the guy laying on the side of the road whose head was gashed in and who was laying there when I got back dead. It's pretty clear that right now, I didn't get out of that car. All these years later, I know what happened. I didn't get out of that car because I was afraid. Everything was right before me. It was obvious what I must do, and I didn't do it. Everyone was yelling at me to drive. The people in the cassocks were yelling at me to drive. Everyone in the culture was saying, drive. You'll only bring harm on yourself. You'll risk everything that you are and everything that you have. And I drove, and he died. And that's a fact. Creation, beauty demands sacrifice. Creation begins with sacrifice. And if we can muster the courage to even do a little bit, creation will grow. Guys, things grow. If you till, if you sweat, things will grow. If we do this, we will have enough. We will be stewards and not owners. 
We will be brothers with keepers. We will be friends without foes. If we give to the poor, we will become rich. But our society has taught us to fear, to worship matter, and to conserve what is mine. We tell lies about being self-made. We love the myth of independence. We imagine our brothers and sisters as our competitors and that the market determines success. What a bunch of garbage, garbage. But St. John tells us that's all a lie. He tells us that if we entered the Avalos, if we think like this, we will enter the Avalos. We will come apart and we are and we, we will. So let's not do it. Let's make a pact. This is the end. Let's choose symbolos over diabolos. Let's choose radical hospitality over reasonable ideology. Emmanuel, we can do it. That's what we should do. That's what I think. And I want to take questions because there's more to say. Thanks for tuning in today. Gosh, that's heavy stuff. Also, if you cry, I don't know, just go back and look. When I'm crying, it's weird. It's, I, I don't think you should cry so much as I do. <laughs> what? Oh, it's so embarrassing. You know what, though? This is a tear shed for all of the beauty that you guys offer to our work. Keep supporting us. It matters. So many stories to tell about people in the field, folks who've come home and gone about a beautiful life here after being, I don't know, taught all the deep lessons over there, wherever there is, Mozambique, Sierra Leone. Greetings to all of our field workers. Love you guys. And greetings to all of you who support us. Love you. Our work is unique. Check us out, www.first-things.org. See you soon for more talk about the old and new worlds, including this conversation about baptism coming up on the next couple Watars. Peace out.